If a person can't get financing, they disappear. And so we felt it was a great way to help the customers that need financing for the durable goods, and then also bring an incremental customer to the retailer. I mean, we have a really high repeat rate. It's over 50% of the customers come back and lease with us again. There are certain things many of us take for granted, including making purchases on our credit cards. It might surprise you to learn that 40% of the population is actually considered non-prime, which means they have either been turned down for a credit card, they have bad credit, or have no credit at all. These people are often denied the ability to make purchases, particularly on large goods like appliances or furniture. But what if they could be given the opportunity to make those purchases? What if they were given the chance to make payments based on their own ability on their own schedule? That would not only open up a new customer pool for brands, but it would provide a way for a large group of people to build credit in a meaningful way. Catapult is making all of that possible. And on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, I spoke to Catapult's CEO, Orlando Zayas, about how it all works. We talked about the difference between buy now, pay later, and lease to own. And we got into how new financing options lead to more incremental sales for brands. Plus, we dove into how to build a highly functioning team and the challenges of going public. Enjoy today's episode. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Before we dive into this episode, I was hoping you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps spread the word about the show and I would really love it. So please let me know how I'm doing and give me a rating, give me a review, let us know. All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission.org. Today on the show, we have Orlando Zayas, who's the CEO of Catapult. Orlando, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I'm very excited. So for anyone who does not know Catapult, can you tell me a bit about what it is, what you guys do, all the details? Sure. So Catapult provides non-prime financing for durable goods like appliances, furniture, through e-commerce retailers and and omni-channel retailers. So a a person could have gotten declined for credit uh, to buy a sofa or a refrigerator can come to us and we provide a lease to own option for them so they can take it home today. Awesome. Okay. And what does non-prime mean for people like me who aren't really sure? If you've ever been turned down for a credit card, you'd be considered non-prime. Okay. (laughs) And it's about 40% of the population. It's surprising how big a population it is. I think the uh, Federal Reserve had a statistic a couple of years ago that said 40% of the U.S. population has trouble making a $400 emergency bill. So you can imagine you're a single mother, three kids, 
your refrigerator breaks down, you know, you might not have the money to buy a new refrigerator, but you need to get one right away. Got it. Okay. And you joined in 2017, correct? Correct. What was the draw to come to Catapult? Like what was your vision when you were coming over? So I, I ran a company similar to this called Tempo that did mostly brick and mortar, leased to own, and um, was through major retailers. And what I liked about it was uh, Catapult was then called Zibby. And actually looked to acquire them because one, I liked what they did from an e-commerce perspective. I really felt that e-commerce is the future and this non-prime consumer you know, didn't have the capability to shop online uh, because they didn't have the credit to do it. And so they might not have a credit card or they're maxed out on their credit card. And so they had limited options on e-commerce, but yet they were shopping online. And, and I liked the idea of providing you know, very clear, very transparent transaction to customers so they can make an educated decision. And it's it's much different than in a store where you know, in a store, you have a salesperson that might be overselling the product, you know, getting them to buy more than they probably can afford. But in e-commerce, the customers are very educated. They can Google you. They can check out you know, your financing and see how it compares. And, and then they can make a decision. So you know, I was approached to, to take over the company in 2017. I really liked what they did from the technology end of it and doing the integration into the retailer's checkout. So for example, at Lenovo, uh, which is one of our long-term clients, you can go into the checkout and check out with Catapult and it's real seamless. It takes you know less than five seconds to get approved and less than 90 seconds to complete the transaction. And I like that uh, you know digital first uh, approach that the company had. I just got excited about it because I think that's the future of retail. Yeah, cool. So when thinking about the risk element to it, who actually is taking on the risk in the arrangement? We are. <laughs> yes. Catapult. Okay, fully catapult. Okay, got it. That's, I think, an interesting aspect to our business is the one, the retailer doesn't take any risk. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's fraud, for example, we have our own fraud filters. You know, we don't charge back the retailer in any shape or form. And then on the collection side, you know, because these are non-prime consumers and they run into financial difficulties, we're very you know, close with the customer around making payments if they miss a payment, trying to get them to ownership as quick as possible, because that's what most customers want to do. So did you pull anything from maybe your, you know, history? I think you worked in finance and whatnot. Was there anything there that you kind of pulled into Catapult to maybe help from the risk protection angle or thinking about like how to actually work with consumers maybe in a different way? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, You know, I worked at GE for a number of years on the credit card side and you know, that was a machine, right? And I and I really felt that the, the non-prime consumer, you've got to kind of handhold them. You've got to, you know, listen. You've got to be there when they run into financial difficulties. You've got to give them options to try to get to ownership. I mean, nobody wants to miss a payment. I really don't believe that. Uh, most people are, are good people. They want to make their payments. And so how do you help them get to that point? And, and we're very flexible. We work really closely. That's why we have, you know, great MPS scores and trust pilot scores is that, you know, even when the customers miss a payment, um, we're there to help them get to ownership. Got it. Okay. So, and you all, I think I saw that you kind of partner with a firm where if like a firm doesn't approve someone, then you guys are like the next layer kind of ready to help mm-hmm. that customer. Tell me a bit about that relationship. Sure. No, that was an exciting partnership with them because a firm like many of the prime lenders, right? So, I mean, they're mostly, mostly prime and is Synchrony and ADS and some of these other credit card companies. I used to work at Synchrony you know, they focus on the prime consumer. And so, you know, when you look at approval rates at a retailer for financing and you're applying for financing, 
you know, they could be anywhere from, you know, 60 to 30%, depending on the retailer and the type of product. Well, what happens to all those people that are applying for financing? They need to finance the good, and then they get declined, and especially online. And what happens is, and we've done some testing with some retailers, is that they disappear. And so we approached a firm about a partnership because what we wanted to do is have a waterfall where, you know, you'll apply for a firm that select retailers. And if you're declined, your data comes to me automatically. And then we return, sorry, you were declined for a firm, but here's an option. And then again, it's very clear, it's very transparent, and the customer can make the decision at that time. And so that was a great partnership for us because one, it helps the retailer capture those incremental sales that don't lose a customer. I think, you know, Stephanie, you've probably like me, you know, you go on to a website and you don't f- finish the checkout and you're suddenly getting messages from the retailer. Yeah. Oh, don't forget your cart. That's the case with financing even more so. If a if person can't get financing, they, they, they disappear. And so we felt it was a great way to, um, one, help the customers that need financing for the durable goods, and then also bring an incremental customer to the retailer. I mean, we have a really high repeat rate. Mm-hmm. It's over 50% of the customers come back and lease with us again. And I think that's important because it shows that, one, we treat the customer right. The customer is very happy with the experience. And it, it's building loyalty not only with us, but with the retailer. Uh, yeah, I want to hear a bit more about the customer journey. Because when I think about, I mean, I, to be clear, I've never used a firm or anything like that. I also don't make big payments or like big purchases too often. But I think what also has helped me back is thinking about going through the funnel. I'm like, oh, what will it take to get approved? I don't even know what that looks like. And, you know, how many things do I have to fill out? Mm-hmm. How do you guys create a process that is not something like in my head right now where I'm like, oh, I can't even like start it. I give up. Well, I'll challenge you to go on to a purple mattress okay. just for grins and apply for a firm. Because, mm-hmm. uh, again, you don't have to do any. You won't be charged anything. You can apply and see the process. But it really is simple. And that's why a firm picked us to partner is. When you apply for a firm, you you um, are asked the last four digits of your social security number mm-hmm. and your name and address. And that's pretty much it. Oh, wow. And so there's very few fields that happen. And so I, think, you know, I know the reason why they picked us is because we're able to take that same data, pull up all your information, make a decision mm-hmm. on whether to approve you or not. And it happens literally within five seconds. So there's not a ton of information that is being asked of you, both on the Affirm side and on our side. I think that's why they partnered with us. It was it was always kind of eerie when we talked to them. We showed our application flow and their application flow, and they're almost identical. Oh, and, and so it was. I think it was a logical choice for them to pick us um, to partner with. But it, it really is simple. And I think that's the opportunity with e-commerce is you've got to make it as simple and transparent and easy as possible because. You know, we've all sat there waiting, you know, maybe you haven't because you haven't applied for credit online. <laughs> I'm so risk adverse. I stay away from everything, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you apply because you need a loan and, and you see that hourglass spinning or, you know, and if it takes more than five or 10 seconds, you're like, God, yeah. I'm not going to get approved. And then you bail. Yeah. And that's why that speed was so important, making a decision. And literally you go through the process, you'd be surprised how fast you get an approval. Yeah. Okay. That, that's awesome. So now with the holidays coming up, what are you guys seeing right now on your side? Because I've heard that, you know, consumers are ready to spend right now. This is like the season that is going to be better than it has been the past couple of years for retailers. So what are you seeing on your side? And how should retailers prepare for this, actually? Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that the problem that retailers are going to have is, you know, the supply chain yeah. issues, right? Yeah. Can, they, can they get the product? I mean, one thing that I noticed this holiday season, at least, the discounts weren't as heavy as they were in previous years. And I think that's because 
they probably don't have as much product as they had in previous years. And so they're not having to discount them that much to get people to buy them. But the demand is definitely there. Mm-hmm. The customer is out shopping. You know, the store traffic is better. I don't think it's as, as good as maybe 18 and 19. It's definitely better than it was in 2020 because I don't think people were going to the stores. And then e-commerce is, you know, is about the same. It, you know, I think e-commerce picked up during COVID, especially with, during the lockdowns, because there was no other way to buy things and demand is still there. Uh, and so I think it elevated e-commerce shopping. I read some reports that said, you know, it moved e-commerce shopping 10 years ahead. Yep. Um, and it continues. So, you know, we're excited about the holiday season. It's always our, you know, from Thanksgiving until uh, pretty much New Year's is usually our best time of year. Yeah. It'll be interesting to use this year as kind of a case study to see what does it look like if, you know, retailers aren't discounting as much. The demand is still there. I think it would make me question anyways, like, should I even discount like I have been doing for the past 10 years? Like, maybe that's not as much of a driver as one would think. Yeah, well, I think it's all supply and demand too. I yeah. mean, the reason they're not discounting is just not as much supply. I think when they have a lot of product, they have to discount because they're competing with other retailers. So I think right now it's just, you know, some of the supply chain issues are driving down inventories and that that is is allowing them not to discount as much. But I think once that returns to normal, which I believe will it will happen next year, then you'll start seeing some of those discounts come back again. Yeah. Have you seen retailers doing anything strategic to handle the lack of supply that they have where they're like, you can buy it now and then get it next year? Something to like get ahead of that and still sell as much as they want to. Yeah, I, I think online, because we're, we're again, 95% online, it's a little different because it is uh, usually, a, you know, buy it and ship it right away. Mm-hmm. What happens is we see customers can like, they'll cancel their transaction and go and get maybe the purple one that's in stock and they'll change their their behavior a little bit. But I haven't seen anything on the retailer side other than trying to build that inventory. I think the brick and mortar retailers probably have it a little easier because they, you know, I went to a Best Buy, you know, the week before Thanksgiving and I've never seen so many boxes stacked up. Yeah. I mean, just, I was like, wow. No problem there. I I was like, (laughs) I guess you're not having supply chain issues. Yeah, because they own the entire ship coming over. They're like, we're good. Exactly. So I think they had it a little easier because they were able to build up their inventories where an e-commerce retailer that's that's kind of like doing just-in-time shipping um, might have had a little bit of a struggle, but not too much. Yeah, got it. I want to hear a bit about the difference between, well, not the difference, but your thoughts on the buy now, pay later option, which I've definitely heard of a lot of people doing that, and then lease to own, which I haven't really heard of retailers offering that outside of auto and maybe homes back in the day. But tell me a bit about how you're seeing the lease to own section kind of pop up. Yeah. So the way we look at, you know, buy now, pay later is so generic, right? It's buy now, pay later, pay later. It could, it could take any form and function. I believe the buy now, pay later, it kind of took off in recent years. I call it the split four. So you can buy a pair of jeans and split it over eight weeks and there's no interest and you just pay four payments over eight weeks um, on your credit card or debit card. That is exploded because, you know, you can go down to $50. I think, you know, Amazon has some really low price points where you can split it. And so that I think has exploded because you can buy things and split the payments and makes it maybe a little easier. Where it gets a little tricky and where I think least to own comes in is on the bigger ticket items. So once you get over $300, you know, splitting it over four may be a little bit more difficult, especially when you get into you know, appliances, you know, a thousand dollar refrigerator, for example, you're going to have a hard time splitting it over four payments. Mm-hmm. 
So that's where I think we separate. And then, then if you look at the demand from the consumer, if the customer has access to credit, they'll probably find out another way to pay it, right? They might have a credit card they can put it on. They might you know, apply for the private label financing um, and they can figure out a way to pay for it. It's the customers that don't have access to credit where lease to own comes in because you know we can approve people that you know, got turned down for the credit card, maybe don't have access on their current credit card to put it on, but they need that item and they need the, the furniture, you know, because we, we specialize in durable goods, you know, these are items people need every day for, you know, everyday living. And so we help that customer that got turned down for credit, maybe doesn't have access to credit, but it's a bigger ticket item. It's not a $100 pair of jeans. It's a $1,000 refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And the way that the lease works is, very similar to a car lease that you have monthly payments or, and we actually split the payments over by whatever the customer gets paid. So if they get paid biweekly, they'll have biweekly payments. They're not paying anymore. They're just, we, we try to make it easy for them to pay us back. And then at any point in time during, it's a 12 month lease at any point during the time, they can pay off the lease. And at the first 90 days, they can pay it off for 5% or less um, of the, of the fee uh, as a fee. And then after that, we discount the lease payments for the rest of the time. So, so we put control in the hand of the consumer. We communicate with them often to say, hey, look, you're in your 90 days. You can pay it off for $1,000, 50, you know, $1,050, that $1,000 refrigerator example. And then afterwards, we communicate with them along the way to let them know when they can pay. So if they get a tax refund or they get a bonus at work or, uh, or a stimulus payment, you know, they can get to ownership as quickly as possible. And what we found, and I think where we're different in the marketplace, is that we found that if we get customers to ownership as quick as possible, they come back. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. We want them to be happy. We want them to feel pride in ownership. And we want them to come back and do it again. And that seems to work because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we have over 50% of our customers come back and lease with us again. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it seems like that entry point is really special and valuable to consumers who maybe have never had that before, because that's a whole mindset shift when you're able to finally own something that maybe you thought you would not be able to, or couldn't even buy before that. I could see that just changing the whole landscape afterwards. Yeah, it does. And, you know, and unfortunately these customers in the past would have to, you know, go to a pawn shop and pawn some things, go to a a payday lender, you know, they'd have to find other, borrow money from their uncle, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, find other ways to pay to get the items that they need. Because again, these aren't luxury items. These are durable goods that they need for everyday living. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're gonna go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. So when thinking about Catapult, I want to hear a bit about your growth you know, within the company and how you've been hiring. I know you guys had a 
SPAC that you went public on. So I want to hear all the details around like what it's been like the past couple of years, you know, seeing that growth. It's been fun, exciting, crazy. You know, <laughs> there's a ton of words I can use to describe it. You know, when I took over the business in 2017, we were doing roughly 17 million in revenue. So it was, it was small. I knew that this could be something, especially since we were focused on e-commerce and if we position it the right way. And really, it was all about hiring the right people. I found that throughout my career, whether I was a GE or, or wherever I was, is that, you, you know, you got to put the right people in the right seats and let them do their job. Mm-hmm. And so I brought my CFO in with me. She was my previous company with me. I hired a, a really hotshot risk leader who she is amazing around uh, modeling and underwriting. And then the COO, you know, he, he executes. He just knows how to get things done. And then you just continue to build out the team that way and then let them do their job. And so, you know, we focused on, you know, going after those retailers that felt the same way we did about this market. We focused on the technology. We are a pretty sharp CTO who, you know, knew the space, understood the checkout. And we focused on technology and then we focused on selling. And I think those things all came together. We started doubling the business every year. In 2020, you know, we took off with COVID. Uh, because people were stuck at home shopping, and yeah. but yet they might not have had the finance capability to finance it. So we took off. Uh, the business continued to grow. We had an amazing year in 2020, and that's when the board decided, you know, hey, you know, have we thought about, you know, what are our options going forward? You know, it's some uh, venture capital guys in there um, and some strategics in there in our cap table. You know, how can we continue to grow this business? Get us access to capital. And the SPAC idea came up and, you know, I'll be honest with you. I remember when somebody said, Hey, let's go public via a SPAC. And I had to look it up because I didn't know what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I quickly got educated on what a SPAC was. It sounded exciting because I, you know, I, I know from other companies that I've worked for going public is a long, takes a long time, takes a lot of build. This felt like a much faster, more exciting way to do it. And yet gave us access to capital. So we were building up our our balance sheet um, with cash so we could invest in the business. And when we closed the transaction in June, we got an extra $50 million. So we're sitting on $100 million of of cash in our balance sheet that is enabling us to hire the salespeople, hire the tech people, and really create, you know, continue to to, uh, be in the forefront of e-commerce shopping um, and helping these retailers, you know, tap this incremental customer base. So it was exciting. I mean, I rang the bell at the NASDAQ. That was probably the highlight of my career. And uh, it was great. And, and the team was energized by it, obviously. But now we're a different company. You know, it, we're not a startup anymore. We're yeah. a public company. And I think there's challenges with that, too, because you have to, you know, you hire different people than you've hired before. And so, um, you know, we've, we've had a few people leave recently and, and, you know, because they said, look, we, I liked working for a startup. I want to go work for another startup. Yeah. And I understand that. I, you know, I'd say more power to them. And then we hire people that, you know, understand a public company and what it takes to be a public company. So I've had to learn, I've learned a lot in the last year and a half, a tremendous amount about, you know, what it takes to run a public company. It's a lot more than ringing the bell at the NASDAQ, that's for sure. What were some of the biggest surprises with, you know, now that you are running a public company, like what were some surprises that you didn't anticipate, no one told you about, and you're like, here I am, I have to do this now. That's uh, a long list. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think the just the scrutiny of, and I knew public companies are always under a lot of scrutiny. I remember 
working for a company years ago and they said, oh, you missed, you missed your earnings by a penny yeah. and your stock just craters. So there's that scrutiny of, you know, hitting your numbers, you know, audits and SEC, you know, regulations and things like that, that you've got to hire the right people that understand this because mm-hmm. you don't want to trip and fall on those types of things. So it really is about, you know, I think um, if you look at an IPO takes anywhere from a year to, to 18 months, a SPAC can get done and you know, we got our SPAC done in six months. I now know why you need a year <laughs> or a year and a half. Okay. Because you've got to build that expertise um, and, and you're just doing it by, you know, like a fire hose. Got it. So would you, if you were to do it again, would you take the shorter route and maybe just go through the traditional IPO process so then you could kind of learn a little bit more slowly than you had to? You know, it, it was an exciting way to do it during the SPAC. Um, but if I was taking another company public, I'd probably take it the traditional route. I think you just have time to build you know, what you need to build from a public company perspective. But, you know, a SPAC is an exciting way to do it. And it could, you know, get you the the capital that you need quickly and get your name out there. And, you know, I was, I was excited because I got to pick the ticker symbols. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is pretty sweet. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, I mean, I I can't, I'm not going to say I wouldn't do it that way again, Mm -hmm. but it just depends on, you know, your life cycle in the business, right. And where you are in business. And I think we were ready, probably needed a little extra time, but, you know, we, we made it happen. And I, I think that's the other piece of it is organizations, you know, when, when you're faced with that type of timing, you go fast mm-hmm. and you, 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 some of the things you do are almost, you look back, you go, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if you spread it out over a year and a half, whether you're going to have that same excitement. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And I feel like the team that you have who can go through that, like they're the ones you want to keep. They can kind of go through all that craziness, come right. out and be like, yeah. oh, we did it. Okay. On to the next. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's where, you know, that, but that's usually a high growth company, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they feed off the adrenaline of the growth and yeah. going public just fed, up, fed on that as, as well. Yeah. So are there any moonshot projects you're working on? Any secret projects that you're like, I don't know if this is actually going to work, but we're trying this out. Well, or if we're... there were secret projects, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but you could tell me though. <laughs> <laughs> or just like moonshot thinking right now. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at reinventing the way people shop in store mm-hmm. because in store, the problem with in store and, you know, not to disparage salespeople in a store because, but they have one thing in mind, they want to sell more. Mm-hmm. And what happens is sometimes, you know, the training and education of financing tools in a store is difficult. And so how can we kind of upend that process, put the power in the consumer's hand so the consumer sees exactly what they're paying, how much they're paying, what the terms and conditions are. And they can make that decision even in the store without a salesperson really having to even talk about it. Yeah. And, and so we're, I think that's exciting to us because one, we have a big group of customers that are loyal to us. They come back to us again. Now I want to be able to send them into a store and do the same thing in a store because you, sometimes you can't get everything online, right? And give them more flexibility to go to either other retailers that we have signed up or maybe just another retailer Mm -hmm. and give them the same power that they have online in a store. And I think changing the way it happens in store on the financing side has got to change. There's all kinds of dead bodies in the wake of financing companies that messed up in store. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to let that happen. I think it's the right thing to do for the consumer as well. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we're looking at, you know, what other products can we bring to our consumers that help them build their credit and how can we you know, provide education and things like that so that we're not overburdening them from a debt perspective. 
we're just helping them get the tools to build their credit over time so that they can graduate. And one of the things we have partnerships with a firm is we have two agreements with them. We have the waterfall that I described earlier, but we also have a graduation program where if a customer comes to us that they declined and they actually make all their payments, we'll share that data with them so they can make them an offer for an installment loan. That's great. That you know helps build their credit and gives them a cheaper way. And I, and I think it's my goal is that I want to give the customer the best financing option for their situation at the time. Mm-hmm. And if it's with somebody else, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, thinking back to the uh, in-store, like how to get this to people in store. I'm just imagining like the sales associates, like, do you want a credit card? Do you want it? I'm like running away through the aisles. Like, no, I don't want anything. Leave me alone. Well, they all usually get, you know, incentives. For- I know they're even dinging the bell. Like, good job, Joanne. Like just got another one. I'm like, was that me? She just got, I don't know. But thinking about like a tablet that you can just kind of go to see really quickly. Oh, I qualify. Or just like- do, it on, do it on your phone. Or do it on your phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do it on your phone yourself. And so you don't have to talk to anybody in the store. You can just do it on your phone and then Maybe you show a barcode or something like that to get the transaction done. Mm-hmm. If you're on your phone, would it matter what location you're in? Like, does it even matter? Yep. No, that's great. No, but yeah, there's obviously technology around knowing that somebody's in what type of store, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a furniture store, electronic store, so you can kind of make decisions on underwriting that way. But uh, you know, it's, there's there's a lot of technology out there that we're we're working on and developing around. How do we get that customer again? Make it a customer friendly transaction whether it's in the store and the e-commerce, that's clear. I mean, one of the things we've, I've been adamant about is we've got to be fair to the customer. We've got to be clear and transparent to the customer. They got to know what they're paying. And, and that shows up. Mm-hmm. How are you finding customers right now? Because I'm thinking about the customers that, you know, almost apply, they get denied. Like you said, they disappear. Like, how are you finding the people who maybe you don't even know to look for credit options? Well, you know, obviously we do some marketing ourselves, but we rely on the retailer. Once the retailer realizes that this market one is shopping on their site and it becomes an incremental customer, then they're more likely to start marketing towards this customer, which is, you know, again, different search engine optimization, mm-hmm. you know, all the tools that retailers use to drive customers to their site. They could change the way they market to certain groups of people because they realize these are incremental customers that they thought weren't shopping on their site at all. And so we work with the retailers to help them identify this customer you know, the marketing tools, obviously we do some marketing on their behalf to our current customers to get them to come back to the store or the website. And so I think it's a combination of all those things to drive the incremental business, but it really is around the retailer acquisition. So our acquisition costs are really low mm-hmm. compared to a lot of e-commerce businesses now, because we rely on the retailer, we partner with the retailer, but we're also educating the retailer on how to target this customer. Awesome. All right. Let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Orlando? I'm ready. All right. What's the best piece of business advice you've received since becoming CEO at Catapult? Best advice is hire the right people and get rid of the wrong people fast. Yep. Yeah, that's always a good one. (laughs) What's a book that you keep coming back to like year after year? You're like, I want to check back in on this. Yeah, it's Execution by Vosity. I think it's it's an amazing book. And it, it talks about, and I think I even mentioned it earlier in the talk, that you got to hire the right people and put them in the seats on the bus, and then they'll help you drive the bus in the right direction. And I've always I've always felt that way. you got to hire the right people, and they'll help you drive the business. Yep. I'll have to check that book out. Sounds like a good one. What's one thing you don't understand today, but wish you did? Um, 
nuclear fission. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, that could be an answer. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of things I don't understand today. How the the macro economy is affecting inflation. I loved economics when I was in college. I still don't. I, I know we print money and things like that, and, and I, I still. You talk to two different economists, you get two different answers. So oh. I'd like to know more. I think if I went back to school, I would major in economics. Yeah. I want to know what's happening with inflation too. So when you find right. out, exactly. come back and let me know because it's gone wild. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. If you had a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Um, it would be about life experiences. I mean, I, I love reading autobiographies too, or biographies, not autobiographies, and about success stories, you know, people that have you know, started from nothing and how they did it. Cause it's always fascinating to me when somebody is successful and how they got there and it, there's different avenues for everybody. And, and it, you can learn from every single one. And I, that's probably my second favorite books are biographies. Yeah. Same. That's great. All right. And then the last one, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you before? Nicest thing. Oh my God. There's so many um, for me. Nicest thing. There was a party that my team threw for me when I reached, uh, and this is, wasn't at Catapulpo's previous role, when I reached five years. And and it was it was an amazing party. They gave me some really interesting gifts and it was a surprise party. And I was really shocked at it, but but they gave me, a, I had a 360 review mm-hmm. where they said, uh, uh, where they had to give feedback on me. One of my employees who never admitted to it said, if feedback is a gift, Orlando's the most giving person I know. I, it was actually a compliment yeah. because I think it's important to give feedback, yep. but also take feedback. Mm-hmm. So when I left, they threw this party and they gave me a bat <laughs> that was inscribed with that. <laughs> and they all signed it. Aww. And so it was, it was a dear, I still have that bat today because um, it, it was, it was the coolest, you know, recognition of, yeah, yeah, we didn't like the feedback sometimes, but it all made us better. Yep. As it always does. I love that. That's great. Sounds like a good team. Yeah, it was. Well, Orlando, thank you so much for hopping on here today and joining me. Where can people find out more about you and Catapult? I am on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and of course, catapult.com. And we have our investor relations site as well as there's more information about us. And I'm in the process of building orlandosas.com. So hopefully there'll be a website shortly. Yeah, awesome. All right, thank you. All right, Stephanie, thank you again. Appreciate the time. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.